to the Super Dad Show. Everyday dads becoming extraordinary for their families. Being a super dad is not about being perfect. It's about having a growth mindset and striving to become the very best version of ourselves for our family. Each week, we interview superhero guests about how they deal with the everyday pressures of being a dad, partner, provider, and man, and what strategies we can use to further develop our real-life skills and make massive growth. Subscribe now, listen in, and become an active part of our worldwide community of super dads. Now, without further ado, let's meet our guest for today. Today we are joined by Tristan Miller, a dad of a three-year-old and 17-month-old who is most famous for being the first person to run 52 international marathons in 52 weeks, traversing 42 countries to do so. He ran in all the major international marathons, including New York, London, Berlin, and Tokyo, and even found himself in Rwanda, Mongolia, and on Easter Island. He even ran across the frozen fields of Antarctica. Tristan, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Very exciting. Now, um, I've read up on parts of the story behind why you undertook what can only be described as a crazy thing to set out to do, but I would love to hear it in your own words. So, you know, I put it out to my tribe and I said, what questions would you like me to ask this amazing man? And um, one of the ones that I'm sure you hear a lot. Um, I'll, I'll cancel the swear words out of it, um, you know, and then we can unpack it from here is why on earth did you decide to run 52 marathons in 52 weeks? Yeah, Jared, it's a pretty common question um, and not one that I've ever come up with a very simple answer for um, because, you know, it's one of those things. It was a, it was a very layered situation, you know, it, uh, I, I, I certainly didn't, you know, start out as a runner when I, um, you know, I had no particular reason to start, well, to, to, to be a runner, you know, except that I was going through some tough times back in 2005 and, uh, you know, after a few marathons and then an ultra marathon, um, you know, some other things happened and all of a sudden I found myself running around the world and that's a very, very short version of it but the reality is it's... Um, you know, like I, I've found running for me is the best escape, especially when I've been going through very difficult times. And, um, you know, the, the, the uh, GFC of 2007, 2008, 2009 was a big catalyst for me to just go and change up my life. Like I was doing the corporate thing. I uh, was working at Google and then Google shut the, the office in 2009, uh, the Melbourne office. I'm from Melbourne. I'm from sometimes sunny Melbourne, so I'm sitting here at home watching the sun outside, waiting for it to rain again. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a shock to me when they decided to shut the office because they said they weren't going to. And when they did that, and I, I kind of felt like I had the job, the job, you know, like the one that's going to carry you through the next 10 years or so. Um, when that disappeared on me uh, and I got my redundancy, I just um, decided I needed to take a very different tack that I just needed to go and, you know, well, I, I wanted to go and see the world, but, uh, you know, being a backpacker at the age of 33 seemed like a pretty ridiculous thing to do um, just to be a backpacker. And so instead of just kind of, you know, touting it as a midlife crisis, I decided to call it a big adventure and go and, uh, and run around the world. And so I made a plan and started telling about people about it, which is exceedingly scary when you start telling people about it because then you've got to recognise that it's going to be a real thing. And then uh, started to follow through on it, which, you know, turned out to be pretty worthwhile. 
So for starters, what was the reception when you started telling people that you wanted to uh, traverse the world and uh, try and do what no one had ever done before? Well, I was, you know, um, there was mixed re responses, um, as you can imagine, you know, people looking at you sideways thinking you're a little bit crazy. Um, some people saying, you know, that's amazing. Like, if you could do that, that's incredible. And quite a number of people just saying flat out, that you just can't do that. You know, it hasn't been done, therefore you can't do it. Um, which was, I guess, anticipated as, as a response. Um, but also... I probably almost needed to hear that in a sense. You know, I'm one of those guys that if you tell me you can't, then I'm probably just going to investigate a little bit further to see if I really can't or if it's just your opinion that I can't. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that was a, that little bit of a fire under me to just go and see what, what, what's the reality? What are the things, what are the reasons that I wouldn't be able to perform, um, perform this task to go and run literally just back up a marathon every week? And in very simple terms, like, You'll have guys that, you know, that are runners in your group, in the Super Dads group. And, um, you know, the idea of running 42 kilometres every week, I mean, that's probably nothing to them. Some of them probably run 100 kilometres a week. Um, and I was thinking about it in that circumstance as though if I go to a different place and all I have to do is run 42 kilometres, that's not such a big deal, you know. Like I, I could go a bit slow. If I get injured, I could slow down. I could do whatever. And for other people, like running a marathon is the biggest thing in the world. So, you know, they only want to do one in their life. Um, as it happened, I'd run five marathons and one ultra marathon from 2005 to 2010 and, uh, 10 and, uh, and 2009, sorry. And then in, in that ultra marathon, the Comrades uh, Ultra over in South Africa, it's a 90-kilometer race. We were training like um, 50, 60 Ks on a Saturday. We were doing another 20 or 30 Ks on a Sunday. I got really used to running for a long time, you know, and beating myself up on a weekly basis. Admittedly, that was just like about a sort of 12 to 14 week stretch leading into Comrades. Um, but the reality was I felt like it was something I could deliver on. The, uh, the difference being that um, when you do those training runs, you're actually just cruising along and having a stop and a drink and a toilet stop whenever you want. When you're doing it in a race, there's almost an expectation or self-pressure to actually deliver on that race. So most of my races, especially when they were flat, regulated, regulated kind of marathons, um, they were, you know, around th between three hours and three, and three hours 30. So you're not, I'm not going slow, you know. So all of a sudden I started to really, you know, get beat up as a result of that. Sure. So were you a runner growing up? What was the point where you went, I'm going to use running to get fit? And, um, you know, how far could you run when you started? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think I've gone through the very common journey of, you know, mature age running. Let's call it that. You know, I, uh, I, um, I started, uh, I, I, ran, I ran for the train at school. You know, like I went, you know, I was mostly late to the train. I lived up in the hills in the Dandenongs in eastern Melbourne. Um, so, uh, so when I had to get the train to get down into the valley and get down into the city to go to school, um, you know, I was always like a little, just a little bit late getting out the door. I had to save five minutes, so I'd charge down the hill. And, uh, and I'd make it all sweaty and hot, you know, just as I'm about to go and have a full day at school. So imagine I probably stank for the rest of the day. Um, but, um, but I... You know, I, it was fit enough to be 
10th place in the school cross countries, you know, sometimes do better, you know, but there are always other guys. I went to an all boys school, Melbourne high school in, uh, in the city in Melbourne. Um, and, uh, and there were competitive dudes there, you know, and people that would absolutely tell me in the 1500 and stuff like that. Um, but over time, like I always thought, you know, I can run, you know, in some of the junior school stuff, I kind of did really well and I can run, but I didn't hold on to it. Like I went off to university. I did an arts degree. I got drunk a lot. And, uh, and you know, like it wasn't really – I started working in nightclubs and stuff like that. And that was not in any way, you know, um, conducive to me running. Uh, you know, I went to the gym a bit because it was, you know, the, the thing to do. And uh, I worked in nightclubs, so I wanted to look good and bulked up a bit, etc. And just, you know, just running came off the table and I didn't really do anything related to fitness um, fast forward, you know, a couple of years in London, uh, you know, met a wife, uh, you know, well, a girl from university actually that, uh, that I, you know, decided to propose to when we got married and we had some good times, but then some tough times. And, um, although we were together 10 years, we were only actually married for four years and the last two of those weren't very pleasant. And, uh, and in those last couple of years, I started to sort of have some moments there where I tried to just kind of get out the door and run a little bit and move a little bit. I didn't get very far though, do you know what I mean? Like I might have run a couple of Ks and stuff like that, but, you know, it was more just to to sort of clear my head. Um, um, But then when I actually did have a divorce, I I really went off the rails and, uh, and drank a lot and took a lot of drugs and that sort of stuff, to be honest. I don't actually tell many people, but, you know, here I am being on a podcast, being honest to you. So uh, uh, it was, you know, it was one of those things. It was a bit of a vortex and uh, I wasn't in a very good place. Um, and uh, and I was working at uh, a radio station in Melbourne, a very famous radio station called 3AW Radio. And uh, and so, you know, it, just, it didn't look very good that I, for me in that business. I wasn't really going to keep my job for very long because, well, I just wasn't showing up to work and wasn't being a very positive contributor to the business. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and yet one of the guys that I was working with, he was a runner and we talked about it a number of times because every year, you know, I was there for about four and a half years and every year he was always in this kind of cycle of training, you know, he'd come off his Melbourne marathon, he was all beat up, but then he'd kind of, you know, stagger around for a week and then he'd build himself up and we'd all give him a clap because it was really cool and I'd talk to him about it. And then, um, when all this happened, he said, Tristan, you know, you need to come running with me. We talked about it, but it's that time. And I'm like, oh, mate, I'm, you know, you're a marathon runner. I'm not a runner. I don't want to run with you. It's too scary. And, um, and he's like, mate, I'm a plotter, you know, just come and have a run. Like, it's really just an excuse to have a chat and, uh, and, you know, we'll get a coffee afterwards. So we'll have a good time. And so we did. We went for a run and I was a bit dusty after Friday night drinks. So it wasn't a pretty sight. And uh, at the end of it, um, you know, he, uh, he just, he'd asked me a lot of questions while we were running. And I really hadn't talked to anyone at work. But I guess I geared myself up to talk to this guy. His name is Rob Gilbert. He's a, he's a, he's a lovely guy. And I've been, in, you know, still, still considering my mentor, actually. He's just a really good, good human being. And, um, uh, I just, I, I knew that I, I was going to have to talk to someone and he was really offering an ear and I really needed it. So, um, so I just talked to him about what was going on and that I was pretty lost and pretty angry and, um, you know, not necessarily angry at my wife per se. Uh, I was just angry at life, you know, like I just was frustrated. Uh, I felt like I had all these wonderful plans, um, for what I was going to do moving forward with my life and all of those plans were about me providing for my wife and then, you know, having children and providing for them as well and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I felt like I'd, I'd 
failed pretty dramatically um, that I hadn't provided for her, that she was really quite frustrated with me as a person um, and uh, wasn't getting what she needed out of it. And so the big thing for, for me was, um, you know, that when, she, when she said that she was, uh, wasn't in love with me anymore, um, the big thing, well, I guess I just, you know, I was torn between feeling this obligation that I had to make her happy but also feeling like I failed to deliver on what was a basic premise of getting married, that she would be happy in a relationship with me. Do you know what I mean? And she wasn't happy in that relationship. Mm. And, um, and what I really reflected on is I'd ended up in exactly the same position that my father had um, some years before me. So my father and my parents split up when I was three years old. My parents met at university, had four kids and then split up. And, um, and, you know, at an early age, he was divorced and he moved back to Sydney, so I never really saw him again. And uh, what really killed me was, like, I, I just did exactly the same thing. And they weren't the same circumstance and we're not the same people and, you know, there wasn't kids involved or anything like that. But I'm like, oh, did I just literally just not look at the lessons of the past and I just didn't take any of it on board. I just went and did exactly the same dumb stuff, you know. Um, and so fundamentally I was frustrated and talked to Rob about it while we were running at the end of it, you know, I was ready to throw up and he just kept on patting me on the back going, you did a good job there. I'll see you next week. (laughs) And, uh, and so the next week I came back and we ran again and the next week and the next week. And, uh, I didn't really run much during the week for the first couple of months, but then I started feeling like I kind of was getting some rhythm about it. And I started to run a little bit more on the weekend and and during the week. And uh, I just started to feel like I had some sense of control again, you know, and that's what I was lacking. I just didn't understand how my life was going to play out moving forward. I'd lost literally, well, you know, physical and emotional control over, you know, my destiny. And, uh, and I just needed some, some vehicle, some strategy to get that back. So by the end of that year in 2005, I ran a marathon. And I talk about trying to get control, rest control. That's a big deal, you know. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you. No, that's all right. Look, I thought it was a really good uh, opportunity for me to ask what Adrian Hanks, our uh, relationship counsellor, asked me to uh, ask you. And it was, do you see your running as a spiritual activity? And if so, how would you define it? Um, probably, I don't think spiritual is the right word for me. And, and, and I think everyone has forms of this, right? So I'm not sitting there saying it's, you know, it's not spiritual. I probably just don't classify it in that way. Um, I, um, I think my running time is my social time. <laughs> like, if, you know, like, uh, especially now that I've got two young kids, I don't really do a lot of other socializing. I, I very rarely go to the pub unless it's with the family um, and I don't get to see a lot of my mates that I went to school with and stuff like that because we spread out either across, you know, across uh, Melbourne or across Australia or elsewhere. Um, and so people that I've had, you know, friendships with, you know, unless they fit into the category of people that I have to see um, because, you know, they're integral to my life, um, you know, then, then, then my running friends are the guys that I see the most. And I'm totally okay with that. Like, I, I'm, I'm, this is just, I, we go and run together. We have a download together. We talk about what's going on in our lives. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's rather than being spiritual, I guess it's therapy. Maybe I call it therapy. And, uh, and we have a bit of group therapy. But then if I go for a run by myself, I'm definitely clearing my head again, you know, just using that time. 
Um, you know, it's, it's not even the same as meditation. I'll probably push back on calling it, you know, the same as meditation. In meditation, you're literally just trying to clear your mind of all the noise and all the clutter. But when I'm running, I'm literally just running through scenarios and thinking about it. I, I don't run with music, generally speaking. Um, so I'm not looking for that as a distraction. I don't, um, I sometimes run um, and listen to, you know, podcasts and things like that. So like I'm trying to learn um, and I'm trying to apply some of the things that I'm listening to and learning about to, um, you know, to, to current issues that I'm dealing with. Um, but a lot of the time I'm maybe venting my frustration physically while mentally trying to just process uh, conversations that I've had either professionally or with my wife because, you know, she pissed me off over something. So I'm just trying to work that, work through that and um, or just trying to think about, you know, like, yeah. So, so he, he's, he's an example. Um, you know, my, my son does this thing sometimes and I know it's not totally uncommon where he, um, he held his breath the other day. Um, you know, he got really upset. We were leaving the beach. It was a beautiful day. Um, we were Friday night. It's a long weekend. It was a long weekend just in Melbourne, just now, Labor Day weekend. And, um, and so we went to the beach, had a great time. And as we were leaving, my wife said, I'm going to go and get the car. And, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll carry the kids towards you. She's like, just stay there. And I'm like, no, no, you go. I'll carry the kids and the stuff. I'll be a man. You just go and get the car and I'll meet you, you know, where we can put the kids in. And she's like, don't be an idiot, you know, you just, you're trying to do too much. Raf doesn't want to, you know, um, he wants to come with me, but I can't carry him. I'm like, don't worry, just go, just bloody go, you know, like he'll, he'll follow you or he'll follow me. You, you go, it'll be fine. And we got, we nearly crossed the bike path off the boulevard in Elwood and, uh, and he dropped down on the bike path right in the middle, like, and just started crying. And she's already walking away and I'm carrying my daughter and all my other stuff. And he's crying. I'm like, get up, you idiot. You're on a bike path, you know, get up, get up. And I'm like, you know, really raise my voice. And I don't really do that much. And I didn't feel good about it. But, um, but, you know, I'm like, get the hell up, you know, and I'm trying to move her away so I can put her on the grass somewhere safe and then go and get him. And what I didn't realise is because he was facing down, I didn't see that he pulled his breath in and he was so worked up that he couldn't release his breath. So he went blue and he passed out, which has happened in the past, doesn't happen very often, but he literally slammed his face into the into the um, gravel, right? So, like, I've gone, oh, gosh, this isn't good. I've picked him up and he's got blood coming about out of his mouth and he's, like, you know, got to be shiner on his face already you know and i'm like oh god it's like you know geez he's the number one dad right here on the beach you know <laughs> pick him up my wife's looking at me like you idiot you did that and i'm like oh, okay sorry yeah but you just go and get the car i'll move forward i got really upset about that like i just felt like the crappest bloke and uh and i was you know apart from apologizing to my wife and just saying look i've got to handle that better i'm sorry and i I don't often kind of do the proper apology, you know. I kind of try to brush over it like it wasn't really me. It was just the situation. But that was probably me in that circumstance. I can't tell you how badly I needed that run the next day. <laughs> oh, no. I just needed to go out and just do something positive and feel a bit better. And I ran 20Ks the next morning. And albeit, you know, that I was running with some mates for a little bit, some of it I was just running by myself and I just needed to go it's okay, man. Do you know what I mean? Your son's okay. Your wife's all right. Everyone's okay. You just, this is just a moment in time. You're not the worst person in the world. Just, you know, just, yeah. just deal. 
And so they're the sorts of things, they're the little issues that I deal with. So rather than it being spiritual, it's more about me just kind of digesting situations and just kind of working through it. And, and, and that's, that's my day-to-day running. But then running the events, the big stuff, like I'm very goal-oriented, uh, so motivated by like entering bigger and bigger events. So whether it's a large citywide event where you go and run and you run amongst thousands of people. So New York, Berlin, both of those races I've done twice because, you know, they're just really energetic races. Um, but then a number of these other events, 100-mile um, races, 100-kilometre, 100-mile races in various parts of the world. Like, you know, you know, I've run across the Sahara. There's the, the um, 250Ks across the Sahara called the Marathon de Saab, 320Ks across the Austrian Alps called the Transalpine, the UTMB, you run around Mont Blanc over in Europe and then another 100-mile in the Rockies. All of those are about creating something that's just bigger, like something that I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out, you know, but I need to train for something, so I'm going to rebuild myself. And each year I feel like I'm rebuilding myself from, from scratch. And sure, there's my weekday runs where I'm building through, you know, some issues, but then those those really big events where I get to challenge myself and really understand what my value is to me because it's very selfish. You go running and you go running these big events, you're literally divorcing yourself from everyone around you, from your family and everything else and just nicking off. Um, but, you know, you get that time to really dig deep into your soul and understand, A, can you deliver today? And B, why are you doing this? Like, why are you here on this earth? Do you know what I mean? Like if you, if you can break it down into breathing and moving and this big challenge starts to becoming something you can achieve, then what are the things, the trivial things that we get annoyed about day to day that I haven't been achieving and what can I do about that too? So you had a real um, breakdown moment, I guess we could say, that really catapulted you into the running. It sounds like you didn't have a lot of support around you going through that marriage breakup at first. That guy at work that uh, reached out to you, uh, obviously it sounds like you didn't reach out to a lot of your friends at the time and feel comfortable sharing all of that stuff. So he was finally the one where you could really dump all this stuff on and he was a really good, healthy influence on you. Now, with the Super Dads, we've got a fantastic supportive group. We've got a lot of dads who reach out and share this stuff uh, with us. There's, uh, there's a guy just recently who had uh, his wife come to him. He's got a couple of kids and she said, I love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. So look, in hindsight, looking back on that first marriage, what are the lessons that you learnt from that that you've taken into this marriage now? Because obviously balancing your responsibilities as a dad, balancing the responsibility to yourself, I hear from a lot of dads when I ask them what it means to be a super dad, they say it's putting the family first. But I've actually come to believe that we need to put ourselves first in order to show up as the best version of ourselves to our family. So if we don't have that me time, which is the running for you, to process everything, to, to de-stress, to catch up with friends, to do what we need to do to, to deal with the pressure upon us as you know, parents, partners, providers, men, um, then we can easily fall in a heap. And I see that happening with so many people who just burn themselves out. So, look, what are the lessons that you've learnt from that first marriage that you do feel have changed and improved you as a partner in this current marriage? And, um, you know, how does your wife really 
help you to uh, to get away and do these things for yourself. She must be a very understanding person or a very annoying person that uh, you, you need to get away from, hey? Uh, she's not annoying. She's not annoying. But um, so, uh, you know, just there was actually a, a lot in that uh, question, Jared. <laughs> there was, mate. I, I, I went off at a bit of a tangent there. But uh, look, if, uh, if we look back, I really am trying to take you back to the past, what, what you learnt from that first marriage and um, and what you're now living with having having learnt that, what, what wisdom you have for the dads who have or are going through the same thing. Yeah, mate, look, you know, well, fundamentally I think you're absolutely right. I, I, what I found was that, um, that I was working... I was working through some of my own issues while still trying to protect my wife in my first marriage. So, you know, it wasn't her fault that I was not doing well in the career that I'd, that I'd fallen into. I hadn't even chosen that career, you know, like I was selling airtime for a radio station. And I, I, it's before that I was selling insurance. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't what I dreamed of as a kid by any stretch. And, uh, and yeah, you know, they were good jobs. They paid well, they did fine. You know, that's all right. Um, I just felt like, like I was, it's going to say, sounds super cheesy, but I was destined to do something more than that. And that's what I'd been telling myself for years. And maybe that comes from being, you know, youngest of four kids and, you know, you enter the grief chain, right? You get a lot of, a lot of kicks from the rest of the family as you're growing up. But, you know, I think it kind of makes you a bit tougher after a while and, uh, and, you know, not really having a dad around. I had a stepdad for a chunk of years, but he passed away when I was kind of in my, you know, late teens and stuff like that. And, um, and I, I just felt like I was surrounded by this, this, I don't know, this bubble of, of, of not quite right. And I feel like I probably took that into that marriage. And, um, and I tried to fake it that everything was going to be okay and that I was going to make everything okay eventually. And I tried to just work myself to the bone to try to make, to try to make our lives better. And I didn't even do that, that, you know, I didn't even do that very well. Like I was working a lot of hours in a second job in a nightclub when I totally should have just been focusing on my day job and like just dumb stuff like that. Right. But I thought that that was me delivering as a day, you know, and I feel, and, 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 you know, retrospectively, thank God that my ex-wife decided to just break it off. Um, and that shook me to the core, but also made me really reflect on why I'd been wasting all this time pushing myself down a path that I didn't like, that I wasn't happy with, um, but I was doing it, you know, for her type of thing, you know, and it wasn't for her. Like I, I don't even know what it was for, to be honest. I was just sort of getting through my twenties, but, um, but, uh, I think, I think what has occurred to me um, and, and lines up with what you're saying, Jared, that I think there's a lot of people up there, out there just pretending. Um, they're pretending that they've just got to work a little bit harder, a little bit longer, and they've got to do it for their family. They've got to do it for their kids. They've got to keep everything together. Um, and if they can just do that one day, everything will just fall into place. Your wife will love you more. Your kids will respect you. Um, everything will just turn out great. You, you, your mates will understand, you know, and uh, and they'll, they'll they'll have been on the journey too, and everything will be fine. Um, what what actually happened was I was probably the first of my mates to get married because I met my girl at university and we got married. Um, 
but I was probably also the first of my mates to get divorced. And subsequently, a few of them have got divorced as well, right? They've split up. And it's pretty much the same story over and over, that they were kind of faking it and then they couldn't make it anymore. They just couldn't make it work. They, they felt like they'd been pretending for too long, um, you know, and, uh, and then it all just kind of got shattered and they'd have to, had to pick up the pieces. And what really got me about it was that, you know, I realised after a while that, you know, I don't know, retrospectively, retrospectively maybe I shouldn't have got married to my first wife, maybe, um, you know, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. Uh, I was very much in love with her, you know, as we were growing up. Um, but she wanted someone that was very stable, that just wanted to do their job and deliver and have weekends together at home and not really do anything else and, not get carried away, not have crazy ideas about the big stuff that they could be doing, you know. So for me, once I was single again, that was an opportunity to start testing those spaces and, uh, and testing those spaces came in the form of running for me. And, um, and so that's why I think Rob was a critical person at the time. So other people were lending me support but not necessarily understanding what I was going through. So they weren't particularly supportive. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't any reflection on them. It's just what was happening. Um, and so the flip side was that Rob, you know, had, had some tough times, not, you know, not that he'd been divorced or anything, but his son has cerebral palsy and, you know, he's had some really tough things that he's had to deal with. And yet he's been a very positive and, uh, and, and strong human being. And I really wanted to be more like that, you know. So I was open to his conversation, his dialogue about how I could rebuild myself and be a better person. And so that's what I kind of aimed to be and that's what I started to strive for. Um, and so as I started to run and I started to put those building blocks in place, like, you know, okay, I can run a half marathon. That's great. So how do I get to run a marathon? How do I build that up? And, and it's and, you know, anyone that's run a marathon or done any of these or even, you know, the stuff that you've done, Jared, in the past about, you know, building yourself up to that peak condition, it is layers and layers and layers of building, right? And that's what allows you to get to the start line and perform on the day. It is not just how you good to feel on the day or natural talent or any of that bullshit. It's all about building yourself up bit by bit by bit so that you can absolutely peak at the right time, really crest at the right time on the wave and just power through and have a brilliant day. And that really actually goes to plan in a marathon because it's a really long time and you're punishing yourself the whole way. You're trying to run a threshold and things just start to go wrong. But, geez, when you get it right, like it's a magnificent feeling and it is very addictive. And so what I realised in that process was I did all the right steps. Like I took my running program, I took it seriously, and when I built myself up to the start line of that race, I knew I deserved to be at that start line. I hadn't just got there on a whim. I deserved to be there and I, I ticked all the boxes to get there. So when stuff started to go wrong, you know, at about 30 kilometres, so, you know, 75% of the way through the race, everything goes wrong. doesn't matter if it's 100k or 100 miles away, 75% of the way it all starts to <laughs> fall apart. Um, you know, I could just break it down into those achievables, you know, bit by bit. I just know what I have to do to get to that corner or this next K marker or whatever it's got to be, and I'm going to get to the end. And when I get to the end, and I will get to the end, you know, then I can start to reflect on what my journey was to get through this, not just to the event, but through the event, and then get to the end. And I can start to really reflect on what I did right, what I did wrong, and go back to the start and do it all again. And absolutely, you know, I have a, I have a layover period after, um, you know, after a race 
and I'll start to sort of calculate what was right with my program, what was wrong with my program, and I'll start to rebuild again and rebuild again. And I, I, I hopefully do a faster marathon or do a bigger event, but at least start to challenge myself to be faster and better in what I'm doing. And I think that that's an absolute perfect reflection of life. You know what I mean? Like no, we... Exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're constantly just building ourselves up for the next offensive. Do you know what I mean? Like, 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 what are we battling for next? You know, what do we want out of our lives next? So, how are we going to condition ourselves, build ourselves, educate ourselves, so that when we get to the next start line, we're just ready to go? Do you know what I mean? You're going to come out swinging, and it's going to all go right. It's all going to go right. It's all going to oh shit, it's all going wrong again. Okay, but that's okay because I've got all these tools in my toolbox. And I'm just going to pull them out right now. I'm going to cobble together the end of this event, the end of this uh, this challenge, and I'm going to get to the end. I'm going to work out what I did right, what I did wrong. Fucking go and do it again. Do you know what I mean? Just work out what I have to do next. And so, um, and so for me, that's very much how I've built myself up to my life. So reflecting on how I was in that relationship, I just didn't know how to be in that relationship. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 I didn't know how to be the person that my relationship. No, my my old relationship, my my first, my first, my first. uh, How how are you different in this relationship now? I'll I'll get to that um, (laughs) because I'll just say that what what I what I didn't know is like how to be for my first relationship because I, I didn't know how to be what she wanted me to be, and I think the really important part about that is I wasn't who she wanted me to be, you know, because I'm not that person. Like I'm, I'm, I just had to discover myself and myself is a person who I like to challenge myself. I like to build up to great things. I want to do great things with my life and they can be as simple as running really big events or, you know, being a better dad or having a good career and things like that. Um, but I'm also, you know, like, like I'm the guy that wants to go and run around the world. I'm the guy, do you know what I mean? Like there's not many people that want to go and do that, but I wanted to and I made it happen. Um, and uh, and so in this current relationship with my, my wife Rebecca, she's a wonderful human being. You know, she's she puts up with a lot of shit for me, that's for sure. And um, and she um, she just lets me lets me go. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I absolutely have to make a you know make a case as to why I need to go and run the next international marathon or ultra marathon. It's not just a given. You know that it's going to happen. Um, there is, you know, often arguments about what, what the value is going to be on our life as a whole. And largely it comes down to me just determining that, that this is what will help me grow next as a person to the next phase of what I want to be, um, whether it's a race or just the thing that I'm doing. This is what I'll have to, to, to commit personally um, given the time um, and these are going to be the outcomes. And, and I need her to get on board around that. Do you know what I mean? And, and I've got the right wife for it, you know, and I'm not the same as every other person, like, you know, and, and my wife, she enters triathlons. She's done like five triathlons just across this summer after two kids, right? So she's a fit person. Um, you know, I went running with my crew this morning. She'll go cycling with her mates tomorrow morning. Do you know what I mean? Like we have a balanced approach to that. Um, I, need, I needed a girl that understands that and that wants that. Um, and that's the girl I got, you know, like, so she, she, she's, she's a hard ass. Do you know what I mean? Like, like she got, I mean, she got fouled off in her basketball match on, uh, on, you know, two Sundays ago. Like she goes hard, do you know what I mean? Like she, 
you know. Um, so I, I found the right girl and, 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 and she respects what I need out of that side of my relationship. And I, I don't want to, you know, discount any, anyone else's because everyone's got a different version of what they need from their relationship, right? Um, so, but I, I fear the person or the wife that tells her partner that they're not in love with them anymore. Like I fear that, you know, somewhere there that she's like devaluing is not the right word, but, you know, I feel like it's a cop out to say, I love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. And I mean, there's going to be a lot of circumstances around that. There's going to be a lot of stuff that makes the guy kind of reflect on who he is. Um, but it's also a two-way street, you know, like, like, so where did it fall apart? Was it just him? Was it her too? For me, it was my, my ex-wife. Do you know what I mean? It was her as well. It wasn't just me. Like, we just, we just parted ways. And, uh, and it was, we probably parted ways mentally and emotionally before it happened physically. And, uh, and we just had to get through some stuff to deal with that. And don't get me wrong, like it was, you know, it was as uncomplicated as it could have been at the time because we didn't have kids. And when we broke up, I just said, well, you just take everything. You take everything that you need and you go. And, you know, if you want money, you just tell them how, how much money you want. And that, that doesn't work for everyone. Do you know what I mean? Not at all. I just didn't want to get lawyers involved. Like I didn't want to be bitter about the end of my relationship. Um, I wanted to take away some memories about how much I loved it. And, and I did. I still do love her. I love the memory of her and the memory of what we had together. Um, I just, you know, I guess if I'm honest, I wasn't in love with her anymore either. So it was okay. Well done, mate. Great answer. And I think there's uh, a lot of dads. Yeah. I think there's a lot of dads that are really going to resonate with that. So thank you very much for being so open and honest. Hey, I want to go back to, um, to this big year of running around the world. And I want to ask you what is a, funny story that people love to have you tell about that journey. <laughs> well, there's a few of them, mate, but, um, <laughs> yep. so let's choose one. Well, this one's got nothing to do with running. So I hope that's okay. Um, but, uh, but you know, we, we went to some random places. So I had a mate with me for the first few months. He's a Kiwi guy, the dazzler. And, uh, you know, Darren's still a wonderful human being. I love him to death. Um, and and he, this guy's a vagabond. Do you know what I mean? He's always doing something new. Like anything that's the next thing that he's doing, it's just a lead up to the next brand adventure that he's going to have, you know. And um, he'd just come back to Australia after being away for a while. Um, and in 2009, I said to him, hey, you know, do, do, would you like to go away again? And he goes, well, not really. You know, like oh, I've just got back and I'm setting up my, you know, my tennis coaching uh, academy and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying what I do and I'm working with these other guys and I can see a future coming out of it. And I'm like, okay, well, well you know, that's great. But, you know, I'm about to go and have this great adventure around the world and you just need to be a part of it so you have to come. And so I finally wore him down and got him to join me. And, um, you know, for a few months, you know, we were getting drunk and we were doing dumb stuff together and it was pretty great, you know, like running around the world. And, like, I was I was actually drinking a fair bit as well. But after a while, he was drinking <laughs> way more than me. And, uh, and, you know, we were having barnies because, like, I couldn't even get him to think straight to get to the airport to get to the next place with me. And we were going through, you know, international customs into places like Israel and uh, China and, and Russia and 
like I'm like, mate, you really have to get your shit together. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I can't have you being a cowboy stopping us from getting to the next stage. Anyway, so we had one of these Barneys in Morocco and, um, and you know, it wasn't, wasn't bad or anything like that. I just said, oh, you go and do your thing and I'm just going to like, walk off and I'm going to go this way and, uh, and we're in Marrakesh for the Marrakesh Marathon and I'm walking down the road and, you know, there's always people in Marrakesh and they're always asking you for money or asking if they can do something or they just want to buy something off you or, you know, you to buy something off them, sorry. And so we walk into the, the souk, the souk, I think it's called, the, the market. And, um, and so we walk into the market um, you know, he parts away and I go that way and I'm going the wrong way and I sort of start to get a little bit lost and, and um, you know, turn down this way and oh, I think I've got it right now but these kids jump in front of me and they're like, Mr, Mr, you know, like, well, we know where you're going we'll show you where you're going. Uh, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm all right, man, you know, I just want to go this way. No, no, you come this way, we'll go, we'll go down this path and I'm like, well, I don't think it's that way. I'm going to go this way. And they're like, oh, running down in front of me. And then, you know, yeah, this way, this way. And then they're running around the corner. I'm just thinking, Jesus, if I follow these kids, all right, something really bad is going to happen here. And uh, and so, but I'm going, I think I'm going the right direction. Direction. I think I'm through another couple of turns, under another building, under another archway, around the next corner and down the next bit. And, you know, it's just one kid now is in front of me. The other one's nicked off. And I'm like, just go away, go away. And uh, and he's gone around another corner and I can't see him, but I'm pretty sure that's where the doorway to my hotel is. And and if you've ever been to, you know, Marrakesh, like basically every wall looks the same. Every place looks ugly as sin, like really. Like they all look like pretty crap buildings, except that when you open the door and go inside, it's just amazing. Like they're beautiful, you know, like these like palaces, right, behind the door. And uh, And so, you know, I'm trying to just get around the corner to get this. So I go around the corner. And there is this, this boy with his pants down around his ankles and he's bent forward and he's in front of the doorway to the place that I'm trying to go and he's, like, pointing at his bum and he's like, touch it, touch it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to touch it. And he's like, touch it, you know, and he's and he grabbed his balls and I'm like, oh, I don't even know what's going on. Like, I totally feel like I'm being set up here. And I'm like kicking out with my foot towards him, you know, my boots going like, get away, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, he's turned around and he's like, you touched it, you give me money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You give me money, you give me money, you touch my bum, I tell you, I tell on you. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, just I'm trying to, I just want to go to that door. And luckily all of a sudden I just heard some guy above me just yell, you know, in Moroccan in Arabic and um and this boy looks up and he looks at me and he's like you know right basically throws some sand at me and he's like you know yells something at me and uh and then he runs off and the guy above me is just like shaking his head and laughing and pointing at me but basically he could see that I was getting set up and I was getting all frazzled by it so he's like up there painting some you know surrounds of some window and I walked in the door of this place where I was staying and I tried to tell them what happened. They were like laughing at me as well. I was just going, oh, you, you're a, you are such a gringo. You know, like you're such a tourist, mate. You know, you really walked into that one. But, um, but all I could think was this poor little boy. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's where he's at in his life. Like he's got to try to, you know, like, like, Get, get get cash off the tourists or set them up, you know, like I'm having a pretty good time running around the world here and I don't have to worry about 
exposing my bum. Just imagine you do that to the wrong guy. Some bad stuff could be happening. <laughs> anyway, there's a story. There's one of one of many, many, many. You know, going to Antarctica was another big thing as well. So, you know, being able to go down there, you mentioned the 42 countries, but running in Antarctica really set that up as a... Just as a record that wouldn't be beaten anytime soon, you know, it's one thing like this. Sorry? Was that in the middle of this 52? No, it was right at the end, right at the end. So it was the last, yeah, it was the last marathon I did before I came back to Australia and I did a final marathon in Australia. So it was, this was all in 2010. And so my first marathon was a New Yara marathon in, uh, in Zurich in, you know, sort of New Year's Eve. 20, um, 2009 into 2010 and so literally running off at midnight with the fireworks going off and that's how you, you, your day starts um, and so did that marathon, it was very dark and very cold not really that many people out there supporting it because everyone's at the pub getting drunk but it was a really good way to get started and then from there you know I went to India, Israel, um, you know across to the Canary Islands and all these other places as well and uh, really bounced around from there. And so right through the year, I was going from continent to country to country and then the next continent to country, the next continent and um, bouncing around. And I tried to line it up in a way that would make it easy, but the reality was like any of the big marathons that you want to do, you really have to go out of your way to get to them and they put them on alternate weekends so that they're not clashing. But sometimes that means you just have to skip continents to get to all those places. And so for me to get to Antarctica, like at the start of the year, I just did not think it was a possibility. Um, but throughout the year, it became more of a possibility as people started to reach out and try to give me ideas on how I could do it because I kept saying, you know, I could if I had the funds or the connections or people that would allow me to do it. And then by the end of that year, um, it became a real thing. In fact, a guy from the... Um, uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, a guy named Ken Chris, he actually reached out to me, got me to do some fundraising for one of his charities, his chosen charities, and then paid for me to go down to Antarctica and uh, and run the race down there. And he flew down there with me. So we went from the um, yeah the Cayman Islands together down, you know, from the Caribbean down to Antarctica, which is pretty crazy. So have you added up what the cost of that year was for you? Yeah, so including uh, putting on the event that happened, uh, which was the last, you know, the final marathon event, which uh, my, sorry, my wife, Rebecca, my now wife, Rebecca, who we got together in that year, um, she put it on with some other friends and, uh, and that was the whole year cost about $120,000. And I went out with a budget of about eighty, so you can imagine it got a bit, it got a bit loose. Um, and you know, I, I, I was, I was doing it cheap, man. You know, like I was as often as possible trying to save money on accommodation, on food, on, uh, on flights. Um, so I'd go, I, I was using Skyscanner to organize all my flights because, you know, it was another thing like to get people to actually, um, help you is one thing, but to get them to spend their time. So you get a travel agent in to help you, you know, book all your flights, they're going to take 10% because that's what their business is, you know, or, or, or more, you know. And so how could I reduce that 10% on a budget of flights that was going to cost me like 50-odd thousand dollars for the year? And so I had a $500 a week budget for flights and sometimes those flights were $3,000 and sometimes those flights were $50, you know, for a Ryanair flight in Europe somewhere, you know. And, um, and so, and, you know, my accommodation was... $20 a night, $30 a night, thereabouts. Um, and sometimes it was more, sometimes it was less. Um, and so I really budgeted to be as tight as I could 
Um, and I had another mate with me, as I said, Daz, for the first few months. He tend to, he started to be a very costly person to have on board, largely because I was giving him money and he was going off and drinking it. And once again, like, this is absolutely the, the thing that I promised Daz. Like, we'd have the best year away. We'd do all this really cool stuff. And, uh, and it wouldn't be a problem for him to go and have a beer at night. Um, you know, like, uh, like, I can't fault him. Like, but it started to get to a point where I'm like, I can't carry both of us. You're here to support me, not me to support you while you get drunk. I need you to step up and just be focused and, you know, maybe stay dry for a couple of weeks and we'll just get through it, you know. So um, in the end, that just started to not work out. But, um, but mate, it was, a, it was an incredible adventure. It was a crazy thing to do. Like, I'd never do it again, but it was a crazy thing to do. What was your fastest marathon and your slowest marathon during that time? Uh, slowest? Why? Yeah, well, slowest is relative, right? Because, you know, I was running up some mountain marathons. Um, so, like, there's a Zermatt marathon. So I went and did the running of the bulls because my logo, it's a bull, right? So you go to Pamplona, you do, you do the running of the bulls. And from, you know, before that I'd been in Russia and I'd been in Denmark and I'd been to Roskilde Music Festival because I love music. So I wanted to chuck in a festival and I went off to Sweden and ran a marathon over there and then came back to the festival and saw Prince play and, then I flew down and uh, went to the running of the bulls and sprinted away from the bull. And my, uh, Rebecca, that I just mentioned, you know, a couple of times there, she actually met me in London and then flew down to Pamplona with me and then kept me company as I drove across France to get to Switzerland to do this marathon that went up the side of the Matterhorn. Matterhorn's a, it's a big mountain, you know, so it doesn't go, we didn't go to the top or anything, but we ran up and up and up and up uh, from Zermatt. Uh, up to this, um, you know, this point, which is the sort of top of the, where the railroad goes. Um, and that took me five and a half hours and I was cooked and that was a 42-kilometre race. And, uh, and then we drove from there over the Swiss Alps into the Italian Alps and got to a place called Mount Bassana. And Mount Bassana is basically in the, um, uh, you know, what's, what's that area in Italy? Tuscan. So, um, so we were in Tuscany, ran over another mountain there. It took me another five and a half hours and I was pretty cooked, right? So I would have a big couple of weeks. And, um, and then I went off to Mongolia after that and ran a 100-kilometre race because, you know, I've done back-to-back marathons now, so why not do it a 100-kilometre race in Mongolia because, it's, yeah, because you know, they're, they're not just doing, well, they've got a marathon and you can do the 100K. And I'm like, well, I'm here now. It's run like crazy. I may as well. And uh, I actually came second in that race. The international 100k race came second, you know, trial race as well. I hadn't really done anything like that before. So that was pretty wild. Um, but then, you know, once I hit Europe again, I'm like, well, these 100k's aren't so bad. So, you know, I entered a, a marathon in Norway on a Saturday and a 100 kilometer race in, you know, on an island off the coast of Denmark on the Sunday. And, you know, to punch those out as well. Um, so I started to really push myself. Um, but, Somewhere there, you know, like I'd lost track of am I just doing marathons or am I doing fast marathons? So, you know, like I wanted to do, I wanted to go on three hours. Three hours is kind of like a goal, you know, for most marathoners. If you can run, you start to run a bit faster, you start to build through the obvious kind of pacings and that sort of stuff. If you can run a sub three marathon, you kind of get a pretty big tick from everyone just going, well, that's pretty good, you know. Um, you're way off anyone that's going to qualify for the Olympics or the Com Games or something, but it's still pretty cool. And, um, and so I, in the back sort of half of the year, I, I probably lost track of that, you know, I wasn't doing it as much. 
Um, and so I started to really pick up the pace a little bit after having a bit of few shaky kind of periods. Um, and, uh, I started to, I did a 306 marathon in Austria in one week and then went across to Berlin to the, in Germany the next week and did a 303 marathon. And that was my fastest for the year. It wasn't my last attempt at a sub three. I had a couple of really good attempts after that. I had some mates that came across to run with me in Slovenia. Um, and, uh, and, you know, guys that I've met on the road, like these guys, I didn't know, you know, before that. Um, but then I met, you know, this one guy in Marrakesh, a French guy and another guy up in, um, up in, uh, uh, in Oslo. And, uh, and these guys flew down to be with me for this race and they paced me through the race and we went close. You know what I mean? Like I, I ended up with like a 304 marathon, but, um, uh, but the reality was I was really burnt out. I was, I was well under it halfway. A 126, but then I just couldn't back it up at the back end of the race. Um, so people were really pacing me. People were trying to get me under because they knew I wanted to do it, but my legs were shot and I was doing too many other things. And as much as I was doing track sessions during the week and that kind of stuff, well, I was finding other places to run, so I was running during the week. It was taking its toll. So, uh, look, let's give some tips to the dads who are listening or anyone listening that wants to get into this running. And I know for me, like I went and did a 96-kilometre Kokoda challenge. I ended up with uh, seven blisters on each of my feet. It was hectic. It was probably harder than any of the 13 bodybuilding comps I've prepared myself for in terms of the toll on my mental uh, capabilities during that race. And once again, it was 75% through that race that it hit me. It was 3 a.m. in the morning, seven blisters on each foot, an ITB injury, and I was just knackered. But once again, it came over me. I, I never saw it as a possibility to give up. I was always going to finish. And uh, so, look, I really wanted to unpack, you know, how many pairs of shoes did you go through? How many pairs of shoes do you go through now? Like, is there a right time to know when your feet, uh, when your shoes are, um, you know, ready to be replaced? Did you use, um, uh, you know, wool around your ankles to make sure that you didn't get those blisters? What were your tips and tactics for being able to do so many runs? Uh, I was picking up, so there's a, a, you know, there's a race expo at most races, right? So I was picking up all these different little bits and pieces that I could try, you know, the special blister band-aids and, you know, any of that kind of stuff that I could grab. Um, I probably didn't have as much of an issue around blisters. And I, and I think that that is, once again, it's a bit of a conditioning thing, you know, like like after a while your body gets accustomed to the fact that, you know, okay, I'm going to wear these shoes and those shoes are going to slip a bit and I'm going to wear these socks and they're the ones that work for me. And I've been running for a few years, so I was pretty comfortable in the knowledge that any blisters that I got would be kind of only surface ones and would last a couple of days. And if I popped them, they'd be gone. Um, but having said that, like like those ultras, you know, absolutely. Like I destroyed my feet and I destroyed, you know, my toes. So the big thing is I reckon when you're doing those sorts of distances, especially when you're doing hills and you're going downhill, if you don't cut down your toenails enough, if you don't shave them back enough, then they just catch just the tiniest little bit on the ends of your shoes. And because of that, that's when they start to just flip a little bit and they start to get little bruises. So it's not actually that, you know, that you're um, that you're ripping your nail off. It's just actually just pushing it up and down, up and down. And because you're doing that, you're actually forcing it back into its cuticle and that's where the, the, all that bruising starts to happen, you know. 
and um, and so like uh, I got a, a lot of that, and um, and so sort of in the back end of the year, I just started pulling all my toenails out, which wasn't real pretty. Like it was a kind of ugly process because I waited until they were just loose enough, and I just sort of pried them a little bit more, and I just started to loosen them a little bit more, and then I'd let them go through one race where they felt like they were getting absolutely shredded, and then I'd just tear them out. So um, not pretty, not recommended because it's not fun. Um, but, uh, but certainly, uh, it worked. Like as soon as my toenails were gone, it wasn't a problem anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like I made sure that I took enough, um, I took enough, uh, different, um, or anti- antibiotics cause I've got infections in my toes cause they were starting to get, you know, like that, just that, that shift of the toenails is what was creating infections. And so, um, so I took enough of those and, and I probably had too much of that by the end of the year, like, like. At the start of the year, I was all pretty good. It was mostly muscular issues. Um, at the end of the year, I felt like my muscles had just gotten accustomed to taking a beating. So I didn't feel like I was going to tear a calf or anything like that. I felt pretty invincible, you know, when it came to the muscles in my legs. Like I wasn't hurting myself even by running a fast marathon or anything. <clears throat> but what I was doing was getting chest infections. And I was getting them pretty regularly. Like I was getting pretty, um, felt pretty um, you know, like, like pain, painful in the chest. But also, as soon as I felt like I recovered from something, I, I went in another airplane to some other random country and I just felt like I got the next thing. And so I was getting a lot of that happening. Um, and so taking antibiotics for my toenails, I feel like kind of destroyed my immune system and then opened me up to get all these other things. And then I'm trying to take antibiotics to get through that. And I'm trying to run a marathon, which is not the best thing to do when you're on pain meds and stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, like it wasn't pretty by the end of the year, man. I was coughing up blood on, uh, in Antarctica, just trying to kind of, you know, make little snow mounds over the top of it. So it wasn't a big bloody splotch because <laughs> it looked pretty terrible on a pristine white space. And, um, and I was, I was feeling pretty, pretty wrecked and pretty tired by the time I got through my year. Um, that's a lot of countries you went to with a lot of different, um, uh, delicacies, foods. Um, I mean, obviously you had your high calorie, high carb diet to fuel that amount of exercise, but how did you fly into so many different countries and get yourself set up with the right foods to recover? Well, I think that was the hardest part of my year was, um, was, you know, like getting to each country, knowing A, what I could eat, what I couldn't eat, trying not to get carried away. So you go to India, you don't want to eat street food, you know, and, uh, and then really just taking into account the fact that I, I was definitely going to get sick. Like I knew that I was going to get sick. And if I got sick, like what, what were my, you know, like uh, fallback plans for either the next race, if I couldn't get through it or, or what have you. I got really sick in Mongolia um, where, I bet, where I had, you know, basically gastro for the next week sitting on a train, the Trans-Siberian Railway across, across Siberia from Mongolia heading towards Moscow and I had a race in the middle. And, um, and the food, unfortunately, anyone that eats in Mongolia gets sick in Mongolia. You know, that's, you know, a pretty, a pretty I guess, proven saying. And, um, and yet, you know, many of these countries where you go and you try to eat food and try to do the right thing, you're still going to get sick because it's not actually what's on your food. It's what's come into that, into your, you know, your living space on your shoes and you take your shoes off and there's a bunch of dust on there and then you eat it because you eat it when you put something in your mouth. Um, and so that's how I was getting sick. Um, I, um, I certainly, you know, throughout that year, every time I got off the plane, 
I felt like everything was white noise. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there was a new language, there was new currency, there was, you know, new, I guess, um, uh, uh, habits and traits of the local people, like, like, you know, courtesies and whatnot. Um, and so I just, yeah, like that was all the hard part for me is just accommodating for that in every place because I felt like I just got used to the last place and I'm in a new space again and I just have to try to take it all in and understand it and try to figure it, figure my, my way through it. Uh, and then I'd get to the race start and I'd relax because like I'd practice running every single week. So like I knew what to do there. So that was fine. Um, everyone else is like nervous and full of beans, right? Cause they're at the start line. I'm like, uh, you know. I just want to get started because I want to get to the end, you know. And I didn't. I don't mean to be dismissive about that each of those race experiences, but oftentimes I was just about. I just want to get going now, you know. I just want to get to running because I know how to feel when I'm running, and uh, and I know in the first five minutes of this race, I'll start to understand how I'm going to feel for this race. So if I can just get through that five minutes, I can start to work out how this is going to play out. And, and I didn't allow myself to get too carried away or eat too many delicacies just before I did a run, right? Um, so, you know, you'd sort of have, you'd, you'd get on the next plane and get to the next space and you get to this next space and then you try a few new things and do a few new things and then you have a good few days where you don't do anything. You go back into cotton wool a little bit and then you do the race itself. So, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a perfect plan, but I couldn't get the plan from anyone else because no one else had done it before. So, like, you, you just kind of make it up as you go along. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, one of our listeners, Aaron Crombie, um, said, I'm intrigued how you overcame days of no motivation and how you did maintain your drive. There were, <clears throat> there were definitely a number of days, <clears throat> excuse me, um, definitely a number of days where I didn't want to get out of bed um, and I was just really tired, just, just burnt out. Um, either I'd just run a marathon or I just had an epic, you know, 20 hour flight from somewhere. Um, and, uh, and I just wanted to have a sleep in the, the flip side of that was I was in a new space, like every week in a brand new space in a brand new country. And, you know, like for me, those experiences why I went out, is why I went out there. And so to, to sit in bed for very long, you're lying in bed, you've downloaded a movie, you're watching a movie, and all you can think is, this movie's great, this TV, I'm watching Friday Night Lights, you know, because that was the cool thing to watch in 2010. And, uh, and I'm, you know, thinking there's a big world out there and it's all just waiting for me and it's just outside that door, you know, so I probably should get up and go and just have a look and just have a little walk around. And once I get a little walk around, then I'll just get a feel for the space that I'm in. And once I know that space that I'm in, then, my, you know, I'll get a bit sort of, you know, more brave about what I want to do next and what I want to see next. And, you know, then I'd start to flick through the guidebooks and I'd get a bit, bit of a feeling. And so if I was going, if I, so I, there was a guy called Stefan Engels in that same year and he finished a little bit later than me. But in that year, he ran 365 marathons in 365 days, right? So a marathon a day. And he did about 355 of those, give or take. He did them all around his local running track in Belgium. Now, <clears throat> if I did that, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. Like, I just, I just wouldn't want it. Do you know what I mean? But for me, like... I had completely the, diff the absolute opposite experience to this guy because I wasn't just spending my entire year just running. I was spending my entire year seeing amazing places and my vehicle to do that was running, you know. 
So these amazing places is what got me out of bed and kept me motivated. I'm a pretty, um, you know, I, I think I'm a pretty gregarious guy. I like to have chats. I like to talk to people about them and what they're doing. And so I'd go and just sit in the common room in a hostel. And I was mostly staying in hostels. And maybe that's half the time why I wanted to get out of bed because you're stuck in a dingy hostel room. So you want to go out and just talk to people. Um, and so I went and just talked to as many people as possible and asked them what they're doing there and get some advice on what to do next. And I, I just talked to people in the street, just, you know, see if they spoke English and just have a chat to them about what they're doing and, you know, whatnot and um and it's one thing it's like uh, one of those funny things that when i was traveling with my mate daz we didn't do that as much we weren't making as many friends around us because we were sitting there talking to each other because you're just there together right um but as soon as i was by myself like i wasn't imposing as a as a partnership with anyone i was just there by myself so people would just open up and start talking to me as well and that really made a big difference to me so uh I got to make new friendships if I went out that door. I got to see amazing stuff if I got up and went out that door. I got to explore more new things and have more incredible memories if I would just get the hell out of the bed and go out the door, you know? So that's that's what motivated me. Now, the guy who put me um, in touch with you in the first place, um, fantastic dad called James Bodycoat, yeah. um, he wants to know um, how you get the right balance between family, work, and me time, and is it challenging for you? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. I have flexible work. Um, and so, you know, I'm in digital, digital marketing, digital advertising, so that's, you know, what I've been doing for a number of years since working at Google. And, um, and so I guess... Um, I think my wife does it better than I do. Like that's going to sound like a massive cop out, but I just feel like she does a better job of these things. Like she's, you know, got the sort of kids time. She's got the her time. She's got the work time. And, and when she goes to work, she's efficient at work. And then she comes back and she spends time, you know, with the kids and make sure they're fed and all that kind of stuff. And at night she'll like just chill out or we'll talk or she'll say that she wants to go to the gym or she'll want to go out and see her friends and that sort of stuff. And we, alternate that time really well um i feel like i take my cues from her like i i don't feel like i'm as efficient as i could be when i'm working do you know what i mean like like if i'm more efficient when i'm working you know i've given myself more time to go and do other stuff you know and the other stuff is what i'm working to do right like the reality is i'm, I'm still just working for pay like i like what i do but i'm not that passionate about it that i you know that i'm in love with it and um and so and so if I, if I can consolidate the time that I work and, like, I don't go to an office, so I'm a consultant, so I, I go to other people's offices for chunks of time and I do a bunch of work for them and then I come home and I do, you know, some more work. And sometimes I let that work, like, seep into the night. And I don't like when I do that. That means that I haven't been efficient with my time at work, that I've... Watch, you know, I've read the newspaper too much. Do you know what I mean? Or I've messed around and started watching a YouTube video and it took me on to the next one and I watched 10 of them. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't need to do that. I, I wasted some time and I did that. And so, uh, and so I love my time with my kids and I'm more than happy to sit there and watch Paw Patrol with them for, you know, a couple of hours. Um, and so I make time for that and, uh, and, you know, draw with them and play trains and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I really love that time. Um, and my running, I keep it in the morning. And um, not everyone can do that. Everyone's on different shifts in life. But my, my time, my running time, I, I find it very important for me to just get it done at 6 a.m. 
I'll go out the door. I never want to get up at 5 a.m. I don't think anyone ever really wants to get up at 5 a.m. And I have one dude that relishes in it and no one else does. And, uh, and I just get myself out. I get there. Once I'm there, I just worry about the first five minutes. If I can get through five minutes, then I can probably get through my session. And uh, at the end of that, um, you know, I go and have a coffee. I always make some time to have a coffee with my mates because then we, you know, have a proper talk about, you know, life and stuff, <clears throat> talk about the football and whatnot. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I just go home and uh, make sure I'm there to do the kids' drop-off and things like that where I can and help out a little bit. And then I've got my work time, which is a pretty, pretty big chunk of time during the day. Sometimes I go running at lunchtime. It's pretty rare. And sometimes I go swimming in the bay in the afternoon or the evening. But there's three or four mornings a week where it's all about just me getting a running. And, and that means if my wife wants to go and train in the evening, I've got to give her time to do that because I'll steal a few of the mornings from me. Yep. And what's a typical day of eating for you at the moment? Um, well, you know, we talked about this before, Jared, but I, I'm trialling um, being a vegetarian um, with, with a view to trying yeah, out a bit of veganism as well. Um, Congratulations. I, I, I sorry? Congratulations. Well, it's, it's, just, it's just a trial. And, uh, I understand, you know, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of those things. I, I just wanted to reduce the amount of meat in, in my body. I, um, I was dealing with a lot of headaches for a while. I, I find that I probably internalise my stress. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not stress-free. Like, I have, you know, worries. And, you know, and, and now my wife and I just bought a house around the corner that we can't quite afford. So, like, there's going to be a decent mortgage to go on top of other stresses as well. I've been developing a running app, you know. So, you know, that's another thing that I'm stressed out about if I'm spending my money wisely and things like that. Um, and uh, and so I was getting headaches. I get this, this tension in, in the back of my head right, right there. And it just, if I let it get carried away it just emanates across my head and then i just have a thumping headache and i always have to take a couple of nurofen to get rid of it and so um i was having nurofen unfortunately for a good couple of years there um probably six days a week uh which isn't good especially when you're running a lot like that's really bad on your system and your system really struggles and so i was reading about the different forms of inflammation you know that we have and that uh, i was reading that, that you know um, basically meat especially red meat um, triggers a lot of, uh, I guess, inflammation in our bodies. And uh, one of the things I thought would be easy to do was to reduce the amount of red meat and therefore just meat in general in my diet and, uh, and see if I can reduce the amount of inflammation. Um, the thing, I, I don't find that that's actually had a massive effect to my headaches. The thing that it did have a huge effect was um, I, I stopped drinking coffee. And it's not the first time that I've done that either. Like I've, I've tried it in a couple of patches. And so every time I go off coffee, um, my headaches get reduced to I might get a couple a week. Instead of like six a week, I'll get maybe two a week. Um, and so I think it's the caffeine triggering something in my nervous system that's, you know, like just, just overloads me and just creates, like takes that stress, you know, cranks it up to 11. That tension goes across my head and then all of a sudden I just, I just get a massive headache, you know. And so ditching caffeine has been great. Reducing the amount of meat that I'm having in my diet has been great. Um, I only really eat a bit of fruit in the morning. Probably, I would say, five mornings a week, I would just have a banana and, you know, maybe two bananas and, you know, a nibble at something like that. 
I still, I do have a decaf latte. It sounds lame. I'm from Melbourne and I'm drinking decaf lattes, you know. Um, but um, but it's it's okay. It works for me. It's enough to just have a bit of a taste without having all the caffeine. So that's a cup of milk, you know. So I'm having a cup of milk and a couple of bananas. So I'm pretty good till lunchtime. I tend to just eat some, either a sandwich or some salad and stuff like that at lunchtime. I don't, I don't really overthink what I'm eating at lunch. Um, but then at night, uh, we mainly eat salads and stuff like that at night. Um, certainly have lots of vegetables, certainly have a lot more vegetables and trying to have less potatoes and cheese, um, with my dinner. Cause I found myself just eating a lot more cheese cause I wasn't eating meat and, uh, and yeah. And then I treat myself to a bit of chocolate. Yeah. It's not the perfect diet, but, uh, it keeps me fit. I'm sitting at about 72 kilos and I'm running pretty well. So that's okay. Awesome. I'll, um, I'll send you the link or you can go to www.superdaduniversity.com. Um, yeah, I'll check it out actually. It's good. Yeah, there's a 14-day free trial, so no commitment whatsoever. And you can go, jump in and have a look at the superhero nutrition course that I put together. So I go through education. At the end of superhero nutrition lesson two, I actually go into um, a, a full week of eating. So... Um, you know, breakfast options, um, quick meals on the run, lunches and dinners. I'm always of the of the belief that as busy dads, we need to be cooking like we're cooking for an army so that we've got those meals on demand, um, you know, those fast food meals in our fridge rather than through the uh, drive-through. So, um, yeah, look, uh, because I'm a plant-based um, uh, nutrition expert myself, um, uh, having been plant power for five years, um, done all my bodybuilding, my uh, my tough mutters, my ninja warrior, uh, all that stuff on a plant based diet. Uh, I think it's uh, certainly going to add some variety and some good stuff in there. And my kids absolutely love it too. We haven't cooked meat in our house for five years now, and I was a meat addicted bodybuilder eating uh, six eggs for breakfast, two chicken breasts, piece of steak, or lean mints for dinner, and. Um, I haven't looked back and never, ever thought I'd, I'd say that. So Your kids yeah. are, they eat meat outside of the home, mate? Or they just Absolutely they, not. Your whole family are vegan? No, so wouldn't, wouldn't say vegan. The kids aren't vegan. Um, uh, I personally don't eat eggs or, uh, or butter anymore. Uh, but the kids do, um, and they'll still have, you know, some, some chocolate or some birthday cake or different things like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, apart from that, I mean, we, we don't have those foods in our house. Um, and, uh, the kids understand why and they, um, they really love animals. So they're living in alignment with their, with their values. You know, we've got, we've got pet chickens, we've got, uh, cat and dog and uh you know we've been to animal rescue farms and seen the cows and the pigs and they don't see those animals as food anymore so that's what i wanted to instill in in my kids because uh you know why do we love a dog but eat a chicken or a or a pig or a cow so yeah 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 Yeah, i um for me it certainly wasn't it wasn't an ethical decision as much as um, you know, I do see the value in, in you know, like in, in in not eating meat and having less of an impact on on the earth and whatnot, and the environment yeah. by you know, having less um, less less farming and whatnot. But but at the same time, you know, I I know people that are farmers. I don't think they're doing the wrong thing. I think you know that's the world that's evolved around us. 
Um, I, 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 do, I was definitely swayed by, you know, listening to the podcast of Rich Roll and, you know, people will be listening to your podcast, um, you know, Jared, and they'll actually just start triggering the idea of, you know, like instead of it being totally alien to go, well, you know, you know, of course I'm going to eat meat. It's just part of the process of my life and everything like that. You start to have questions around it and you start to go, how dramatic is this as a change? Is it really such a big deal for me to just go, okay, well, for a little while, I'm just going to take the meat out of my diet and see how I feel about it. Um, I, I'd, I'd say I definitely feel better, um, you know, but, but not dramatically better. I wouldn't say that I'm feeling dramatically different in any which well, way. I mean, the reason why I recommend and that course with Superdata University, I've got a dietitian that I work with. Yeah, and yeah. hearing what you're eating, I can see that there's some upgrades. Having had to prepare myself for bodybuilding and pushing myself to the limit with that, yeah. training, I really had to make sure that I was recovering effectively. Yeah. Um, so I really sort of got that down pat. And I'm, I'm certainly not perfect by any means now, and I'm not back to the way I was eating, preparing for competitions. But, um, but I don't overthink nutrition anymore. I know that my body's getting what it needs. Um, yeah. And uh, look, I mean, the catalyst for me was I started to learn about the alkaline diet. I very quickly evolved beyond that understanding because I thought, well, okay, well, fruit's supposed to be acidic and uh, I don't see fruit as a, as a bad thing. Obviously, it's sugar wrapped in fibre, much better than the processed uh, sugars, but... Um, you know, I, I certainly felt like meat wasn't working to help me um, recover if it was causing this inflammation in my body. And I, I just decided to test it out with plant-based protein instead and just felt cleaner. My weight um, leveled out um, after I dropped a couple of kilos and um, and really found my groove with, with the diet. And I got in touch with Billy Simmons and Tori Washington, who were two incredible natural bodybuilders um, who had been vegetarian or vegan for years. And I just said, what the hell do you eat in a day? I'm really feeling quite scared of this transition. And they told me what they ate and, um, and then I gave it a try and, and just simply replaced my, uh, my steak with veggie patties, my chicken with tofu, um, my, um, my mince bolognese with lentil bolognese. The family started to eat those foods as well. And we went, shit, this is doable, and it all sort of went from there. So, uh, yeah, look, it's um, obviously there's a lot of plant-based athletes. I don't know if you have come across um, Pat and Katie Dahl. Um, they're, they're triathletes, um, uh, yeah, marathon runners, and, um, and very good friends of mine who live in Brisbane now, um, and they've now got um, – uh, you know, a personal training studio that, that focuses in on plant-based nutrition as well, same as mine does. And, um, yeah, there's so many fantastic people out there these days that, that are certainly promoting it. But it really just starts with having an open mind to give it a go for yourself for starters, doesn't it? Which is yeah, what you've really. done. It's fantastic. Yeah, I just want to try it. You know, I, my wife and I talked about it and then she didn't want to do it. And then I just decided to do it anyway. So, you know, like it's uh, – well, no, I still feel like I'm, you know, like – a meat eater that's cut out the meat. So all the other stuff that I've just had is just a bunch of vegetables and I just have more vegetables to fill up. Sure. I don't think I've done enough of the science, like I've investigated enough of the science around it. So I'm, I'm only really starting to do that now um, yep. to understand the different things I should eat to just make it more sustainable because that's what I'm looking that, for. How do I yeah, that, that course with those dietitian guidelines will really help you then. So, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, glad I can be a benefit then, because you've uh, been such a fantastic guest on this podcast today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. I'm, uh, I never really know what to talk about when I talk about my trip away, because it starts with one conversation, it always ends up with a few others. But uh, <laughs> it was a big year, and although it feels like a long time ago, I'm pretty lucky. I'm a public speaker, so I do a lot of... Um, I had my, my, my talk, you know, and it goes for about an hour and you can see a shortened version, the TED, TEDx uh, that I did in Dubbo a few years ago. So that's on mine there. But, um, you know, it's uh, other people just, you know, different people have a different, just a different, you know, spin on, on why yeah. I did yeah. it. And it's, it's, it's actually is a really broad story and there's lots of different reasons why, why it occurred. And yeah. uh, for me, it was just a culmination of a lot of different stuff that happened in life that allowed me to just make the decision to go. Yeah. And look, I love that we really brought out that, uh, that struggle through that previous marriage and, um, and how you dealt with it. And also, you know, when you were, when you were talking about your running and how therapeutic it was, I think we're definitely going to um, inspire a lot of dads to get off their butt and find that thing for them. That makes them want to push uh, push themselves harder and really better themselves, which is what it's about. Uh, all about to be a super dad. So, um, mate, how can people uh, get in touch with you if they're interested? You've you've mentioned that TED talk, and I think we've covered a lot of that information that's in it. But you've also got a book, is that right? Yeah, there's a book called Run Like Crazy, um, and you know you can definitely jump on you know the website runlikecrazy.com, and you can find a link on there to buy a copy if you want. You can also just go into your store. It came out with Penguin a few years ago. It's been translated into Chinese if you happen to want to read it in Chinese. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, you know, you can order it in your store and you can get it delivered there. So it's pretty good. Um, you know, it's, well, you know, A, it's a great story, but, you know, B, they're pretty good at getting delivered if you want to just get it at your local bookstore. And um, it's, you know, it's been, it's been wonderful. For me, you know, I haven't made thousands of dollars out of, of writing a book, but it's been a great business card to have out there and people can, can have a read and, and find out a bit more about me and a bit more about the journey. And I like to tell people it's not so much just about running around the world, you know, as it is a bit of a life story and a journey story. So I think that's what's good about it. Um, but to find us, just, you know, we're on Facebook, um, you know, facebook.com uh, slash runlikecrazy. You'll find the groups, the group page. We've got four different running groups uh, across Melbourne. So if you're ever in Melbourne or you happen to live in Melbourne, certainly hit us up and come for a run, uh, you know, because we always, you know, love, it, have, love having visitors, uh, having a bit of a trot with us. So it's good fun. And we do some pretty hard sessions on a Tuesday and a Thursday morning, you know, but that doesn't mean you can't be there and have a cruise if you want to just have a cruise. And, uh, and yeah, it's, um, you know, you can find me, just just look up Tristan Miller and, you know, you'll find a link on Facebook to me as well. So be more than happy to befriend uh, the group and also join the group. I'm hoping to just connect up into the Super Dads group as well. So I hope maybe I can offer a bit of advice if people have any other questions along the way too. And I'll be looking for some advice because I'm still a pretty fresh dad and I'm yeah, still trying well, to work. A three-year-old and a 17-month-old, um, definitely jump into the superdadapp.com com uh download the app onto your phone and jump in there uh we love to answer the tough questions and uh yeah. support dads and support each other in there and that's a real growing community we're trying to get off facebook and onto this app with so many more cool things inside it so uh yeah, great. We want to see you in there in there mate and um and yeah look i was quite fearful of doing this interview today and the main reason was i haven't done a marathon yet but uh, i think you may have convinced me that that is the next physical challenge to 
to treat myself too and my poor family because I've done so many other things. I've always been a sprinter and a bodybuilder, but it sounds like a challenge that I'm really going to have to up the ante in order to accomplish. Oh, it's definitely worth it, mate. It's, it's a life-changing experience and, uh, and I recommend it to anyone. Uh, but start with your local park run. Go and do the 5K park run and then build to 10K after that and then, you know, build to a half marathon. Take the journey because those stages make it actually all worthwhile when you hit the start line of your, your big marathon. And I'll be at the Gold Coast Marathon along with all the other guys wearing the Run Like Crazy Bulls. Um, so if you're in the area in the middle of the year, we come up and have a run there. So, uh, you know, come meet up with us there. And I'll be at the what date is that, mate? I'll come down and see you for sure. I think it's the uh, it's usually the first weekend, the first Saturday, the first Sunday, sorry, in um, yep. uh, in July. So whatever that is, it's the fifth or something like that. Excellent. And seeing, seeing you like to take a lot on, uh, once you've run that marathon, come up and I'll teach you to barefoot water ski. Come up to Brisbane. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, we usually take a week and go up the sunny coast after that, so I'll drop in. Yeah, great. Yeah, beautiful. All right, Jade. Okay, well, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Um, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you got a lot out of it to, uh, to our listeners. Uh, yes, this is Tristan Miller of Run Like Crazy, and uh, this is the Super Dad Show. Please make sure that you listen in for the next episode and make sure you download the Superdad app at the superdadapp.com.